You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime, Season 2, Gone Boys. When you say these incidents are linked, you're talking about they're victims of a serial killer. And we know a fair bit about how serial killers hunt, how they choose their victims, their pattern. People don't just disappear. And them being disability is a real big thing for me because they're like lost children out there. You're out there. You're out there. You don't have a car, so you're walking everywhere. You're, you're vulnerable. There was a young man that came into the drop-in that had been kidnapped and held for three days and tortured. And he was an unassuming kid, right? He was real, just a real happy looking kid. An easy mark, maybe. Men are going missing here on Vancouver Island. Could some of these cases be connected? Is it possible one or more serial murderers are responsible for these disappearances? You are listening to episode two, The Talking Boards. In this episode, you'll hear about the youngest of the missing men, a boy really, and the earliest of the cases I'm looking into. Desmond Peter is just 14 when he vanishes alongside the highway in 2007. I want to ask questions directly to the officers in charge of Desmond Peter's case and the investigating officers for the other cases as well. But it is Corporal Manso who first agrees to speak with me. We trade emails and speak on the phone a few times before we connect over Zoom. I'm Corporal Chris Manso and I'm the Division Media Relations Officer for the BC RCMP. Corporal Chris Manso is the go-to guy for journalists wanting to speak with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police about a case on Vancouver Island. Do you have any sense of why BC, at least on the surface, appears to have more missing people than other parts of Canada? I would say that some of it is just the geographic nature of BC. We have a lot of lakes. We have a lot of forest. Um, that bring a lot of people to BC. Um, and some people just want to pack up and leave uh, the life that they have and start a new one. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. So um, tourists also come here, maybe not prepared for lakes and forests and oceans. So we have people who come in from other areas who do go missing here as well. So how unusual is it for someone not to be found, for a case not to be resolved, and for it to remain, you know, after a year or, or more, someone to still be missing? Uh, it's very rare. The, the amount of foul play missing person uh, cases is very low. And most of the long-term ones are either people who do not want to be found. They're, they're alive and well. Um, don't want to have any contact with friends or family and just decided to move on. Um, but for those who don't want to be found, and I've um, investigated several of those in my career where they just don't want to have any issue or any contact with friends or family or work. They just 
I've had enough of where I am. I just want to pick up and leave. And sometimes they're found uh, months later and they're in a different province. Uh, one was found in a different territory and um, have to send a member out there to speak to that person. Yeah, I don't want to be found. I don't want to have any contact with that family member. Um, so our duty is to contact that family member and say, yes, we've found uh, your, your friend, your family member. Um, they're in good health. And that's it. And we won't divulge their location or what's happened to them uh, per the request of that person who's moved away. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. I, you know, I guess I had assumed that in the cases of people who had been missing for some time, the likelihood that they would have picked up and, you know, just gone off and established a new life for themselves was low. But you're saying you have, you've actually, that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's rare, but uh, yeah, it's, it happens. Um, we have to remember that um, being a missing person isn't, isn't a criminal offense. Um, so if that person says, yeah, you know what, I, you know, I had falling out with my spouse, brother, sister, mother, family drama, friend drama. I now want to lead my new life in my new town. I don't want to have nothing to do with them. Again, it's it's rare to have that happen where someone will pick up and just start a new life, but it does happen. That possibility, that hope that one or more of the missing men could be alive and living a new life is something family members cling to. The community of Duncan is about a two-hour drive from where I live, and as luck would have it, the morning I'm scheduled to meet with Desmond Peters' family, there is a massive storm underway. I awake to thunder and lightning and wind howling through the forest behind my home. I briefly consider rescheduling this trip, but then I remember something I was once told by a victim's family member. The night before meeting with me is filled with anxiety. Knowing you are about to speak about the very worst thing that's ever happened to you means a sleepless night for loved ones of the missing. I think of Desmond Peters' mom, his grandma, the family who are gearing up to talk to me, stealing themselves to share their loss. And I climb out of bed and head out into the dark, stormy morning. The drive up and over the mountain pass is treacherous, Rain lashes against my windshield. There are branches down and debris strewn across the highway. But as I get closer to Duncan, the sky begins to clear and lighten. As I research Duncan's past, I'm reminded of the town's connection to Canada's largest murder case. Duncan resident Indrajit Singh Rayat bought bomb parts and a radio in town. He used that radio to conceal the bomb on board Air India Flight 182. As I drive past the woods on the outside of town, I think about how Rayat was observed testing explosives in these woods just weeks before the bombings. 329 souls died when that bomb exploded midair. Today, Duncan calls itself the City of Totems. It's the commercial center in the Cowichan Valley on the traditional territory of the Cowichan First Nation. The town itself has a small population with a large indigenous community. 
The historic downtown is only a few blocks, filled with beautiful totem poles. But that outward celebration of Indigenous culture belies an ongoing story of racial tension in the community. And that is at the back of my mind as I begin to speak with people about the missing men here. For the past few years, Cowichan First Nation members have been raising alarm bells about the missing men in their community. They've held walks, they've postered the town and tried to draw media attention to what they see as a crisis among them. Desmond Peter has been missing the longest of the three men on the posters in town. He was just 14 when he was last seen along the highway by his mom more than a decade ago. If Desmond is a victim of a serial killer or killers responsible for some of the other men, then he could be one of the earliest victims. Most serial killers kill over a two to three year period, but serial killers can have longer career spans, especially if they are what experts describe as stealth predators, those who dispose of their victims' bodies so they don't leave a trail. Jeffrey Dahmer killed young men and boys for over 13 years. And here in Canada, Bruce MacArthur murdered young men for at least seven years. I'm meeting Elizabeth Louie and her mom Donna in a downtown parking lot. Hello. Is, what, are you Donna? Yeah. Okay. And you're Liz? Yes. Hello. Hi there. I'm Laura. They have agreed to share the story of Liz's son, Donna's grandson, Desmond Peter. Thank you, ladies, for... I know that. Thank you, ladies, for coming out. I'm glad it's gotten a little bit nicer. Yeah. It was so dark when I left Port Alberni this morning. It was like full Up until now, the only picture I've seen of Desmond is one online. It's black and white. He's wearing a hoodie. His face is shadowed. But today, when Liz and Donna get out of their vehicle, they're carrying a large poster covered in pictures of Desmond. He is a beautiful boy. Thick, long, dark hair. Huge smile. Warm brown eyes. He's wearing a pale blue basketball shirt. And he's lean with just the hint of muscles taking shape. This photo is taken around his 14th birthday, just before Desmond goes missing. This is not the scowling, hooded teen I've seen on missing posters. Elizabeth Louie, uh, Desmond Peter's mom. I live in Duncan. He went missing on the highway. I'm Donna Louie. I'm Des's grandma. Liz got scared because his friends didn't even see him. We've been going up and down the highland and trying to find him. Liz and Donna are quick to jump to Desmond's disappearance. But first, I want to know more about Desmond. What kinds of things did he like to do? What was he into? He loved his games. (laughs) And he'd carry the thing with him over to his friend's place and... That's why he liked being there was because they'd always play games and... He liked his games? Was he into sports at all? 
He's more of a homebody. He loved just being home or over at his friend's place. He'd carry food with him because he didn't like feeling like he was a burden to them and eating their food or so he'd he'd take his own food to to cook while he was over at his friend's place or and he'd take enough to share. But he didn't like school. He didn't like being around a whole bunch of people. He didn't really like doing the school thing. He wanted to just do it on his own. He was smart. Oh my god, he was smart. In Surrey, he was the chess champion. Uh, he loved chess, um, puzzles, building, uh, Lego. Desmond is bright, but he is troubled. This young man has experienced serious trauma in his young life. He witnessed a, a murder of his grand, his grandma's boyfriend, and he was the main witness for for that. And that was really hard for him because it was his his uncle, well, uncles that were the murderers. And he had to testify against them. And it was really hard for him because it was like they'd pressure him into going their way and not what he witnessed. We came back for his naming the night of the ceremony is when he went home with them and that's when that happened. Oh my goodness. And so we went through a really hard time. I wanted to keep him away from as much hurt as I could. He'd wake up crying and screaming, Mom, Mom. He used to ask me to make it stop his dreams of what happened. We had to go in that house and grab some stuff for the kids and grab Des's stuff. And when we walked in that house, me and his dad, I was like, Casey, he's seen all of this. My heart just sank. It's like I can't even imagine what he's seeing. But to listen to him cry and try and deal with it, and I, I felt helpless. I felt so helpless to him. I went like everywhere to try and get him help. How old was he at that point? Four years old. Oh, he was just a little guy. Hey? Yeah. Desmond's early life is far from easy. A witness to murder, his trauma haunts him. His parents have split, and his home life is unstable. Can you talk to me a little bit about the period just just before he goes missing? What is going on in his life at, at that point? How's, how's he doing? He was upset with me because he wanted me to come home and he wanted to live with me. He was in my mom's care, him and Marcus. I wasn't going to lose him to the ministry, so I signed him over to my mom. 
and that went on for a few years. And he was upset with me and wanted me to to sober up and get my own place and start taking care of them again. I was so ready to do it. And I was telling Des, as soon as I get home, I'm gonna go back to work. I was working part-time at the post office. And I told him, I said, I'm gonna get another job. I'll get my own place and then hopefully you guys can come home to me. That was our plan. That was what we had planned. He knew what we were gonna do. So three weeks after, after I get back from treatment is when he went missing. Things were good. Like He was going to the Providence farm. He was doing a program there. And then he him for, he didn't like how much though. <laughs> it was too much work for cutting wood and doing stuff around the farm and uh, and then he had the academic part. So he was doing that and he was doing good. This smart chess playing kid is participating in a therapeutic work program at a nearby farm. He's trying to move on from that trauma in his early life. His mom is working to pull her life out of addiction for herself and her family. You, you talked a little bit at the beginning about um, that period right away, but at what point did you really become concerned? When I seen him on the highway. And when you saw him on the highway, what was he, what was he doing at that point? I was wondering why he was on the, on the right side of the highway going towards Victoria because usually he walked on the side road on the left side. So it was like he was walking towards town. And we were turning in the inside lane and he was just a little bit further up. So I went one minute and I said, I'll turn around. We tried turning around at farmers, but there's too many cars so we kept going turned around at the Calbee turnoff and came back and he was gone. And then that's when we called the police. And, and they labeled him as a runaway. And to give it a day or two or so. Yeah. And then if he's still not home to contact them. And I told him he's and he's I not a runaway. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't just I said he always came home every every second day. It was his routine. He, mm. he and he needed that routine. Yeah. I couldn't say his name for the longest time. Every time I said his name, I'd just, I'd fall apart. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I couldn't function for I don't know how many years. It's just been recently that I've been able to talk about him. I've been able to function somewhat. In the months following Desmond's disappearance, there are reports he is seen in different places on the island or on the mainland. 
the family drops everything each time, but nothing comes of it. Liz describes a feeling of living on hope, but being slammed against the wall over and over. When was the last time you spoke with the RCMP and what what have they told you about the investigation now? About three weeks ago, they came, asked us if, um, if he'd be in Vancouver, hanging around with all in the, in the gay community. And I wonder why, hmm. Um, my ex said, that I was with at the time when Des went missing. There was rumors of him and his son saying stuff about my son. And so we kept trying to get the RCMP to talk to them. And they wouldn't talk to them until just recently. Um, he talked to, to them and said that one of Mark or one of Des's friends told him that he that he's okay and that he's in Vancouver in the gay community and doesn't want to be found. Well, wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing if that it was true? My yeah. God. Yeah. Huh. I've heard a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But growing up in a community that didn't believe in that. So I don't know. I don't know what to think. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I just want him home. I miss him and I love him so much. This idea that Desmond could be alive and living in Vancouver's West End is an incredible possibility to consider. And that farm where Desmond was working is a therapeutic space with programs for people with mental health and developmental disabilities. I make a note to ask whether any of the other missing men work there. Gone Boys will be right back after a quick break. After the interview, we talk for a time and have lunch, getting to know each other a bit. I like these women a lot. There is an easy, relaxed atmosphere, despite the reason I'm here. They tell stories and laugh. I'm jealous of Liz's deep, throaty voice. I tell her she would make a great radio host. As we leave, Liz asks me if I would like to speak with Casey, Desmond's father. She calls him up, and he agrees to speak with me. I meet Desmond Peters' father outside a two-story home on a busy road in the shadow of Mount Suhalem. I pull into the front yard. There is no driveway, just a stretch of gravel meeting a bare patch of lawn. Desmond's dad emerges, wearing an oversized T-shirt and baggy shorts. He moves slowly, holding tightly to a full cup of coffee. 
He is younger than I am. But honestly, you wouldn't know it. Life has not been easy for him. Oh, hey there. Good morning. Sorry, I'm a little bit late. Oh, no, okay. I think that lady's here. Um, if it's okay with you, we'll do the interview in the back of my car. Desmond's dad sits in the back seat of my car. And before we even get a chance to properly introduce ourselves, before I've talked to him about recording an interview, he quickly launches into a story. It's like he's been waiting to share this information for some time. He tells me in the period after Desmond goes missing, a psychic is brought in. The psychic says Desmond was in an argument with two other boys down by the river. He owes one of them some money, and the boys want Desmond's MP3 player, a Christmas gift from Casey. Desmond falls and hits his head on a rock and drowns while the boys look on. And then he shares something that sends shivers up my spine. In his indigenous culture, there is an ancient traditional practice which allows people to speak to the departed through the use of cedar boards. He believes Desmond is on the other side because of what he learned from the sacred talking boards. And right about then, his coffee spills all over the back seat of my car. He dashes into the house to find a cloth. I think he's probably grateful for the break to collect himself. He's already a little shaky. Once he returns and the tape is rolling, I ask him to repeat the story of the talking boards. But he hesitates. He isn't sure he's permitted to speak about this practice. I respect that, and I press him no further. Besides, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, Desmond Kesey, David Peter. I met Elizabeth in junior high school. She's my high school sweetheart. Eight years of my life, my whole teenage life, it was with her. We had the one child our son, Desmond. He was 18 when my son was born. When Elizabeth passed along your name to me, she called you Casey, mm-hmm. but you just introduced yourself as Desmond. So I didn't realize Desmond, is is he named after you? Actually, we're both named after my father. Did Desmond have an Indigenous name as well? Yes, he was. He shared. He shared my late father's name. He was. His name was Saichnamet. Saichnamet from Zamana. The name comes from West Saanich. Moore's family. It's a beautiful name. Could I ask you to say it again? I just. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm hearing it properly. Saichnamet. Beautiful. Saichnamet. Saichnamet from Zamana. I'm not fluent in Hokaminam. I know all our names have a meaning, but I don't know them. My name is Shulchkainam. Shulchkainam. I'm sorry, because I don't know that much about, you know, 
lots of our language is lost. Desmond Sr. is apologizing for not knowing more of his language. But he has nothing to be sorry about. Indigenous languages were suppressed as part of a process of colonization and assimilation. We know now that that loss of language and culture had deadly impacts on the identity and mental health of Indigenous people in Canada. The erosion of Indigenous culture has been linked to alcoholism, depression, and suicide. Something to consider as you listen to Desmond's description of his son's early years. See, it wasn't easy. We were young, dropped out of school. Sorry to say, it was lots of, lots of partying. Spent lot, most of her, most of his early years with her, her mom, staying at her house. We were young, didn't finish school, and too much drinking. For me, there was lots of alcoholism and, and denial about everything. And, so you guys are really young when uh, Desmond is born. Do you have any uh, memories that stand out for you about what he was like as a little guy? He was always happy. Everybody loved him. I, I only knew him up until he was, he was only four or five, and then Liz moved away to Surrey. He was quite young. When the tragic. Another thing I never talk about. What happened in this house. Liz has told me about the murder Desmond witnessed as a child. But I didn't appreciate the murder took place in the home where Desmond Sr. still lives. Where I have met him today. And I have to say it's the strangest feeling to sit with this man just outside the home where a savage murder took place and listen as he describes the banality of the horrific circumstances. It happened on the night in our culture. After four years, we have a memorial for our loved ones, our dearly departed loved ones. We have a memorial, they call it, where you get one of his closest, his closest friends one carries the picture, one shines the flashlight on it, and I walk it all around the big house for everybody to see. Memorial is your final goodbye to the loved one. It was the night of the memorial, my dad's memorial. I show the picture, give out the gifts, feed everybody. Family is the last to eat at the memorial. Family's supposed to stay right till the end. Me and my uncle Derek are mad. My mom and auntie left. As soon as they finished eating, they left, walked out the door. They came back here and they were drinking. My brother and my cousin were here with them. My mom and her boyfriend were drinking. They had their own beer. My brother and cousin were the first ones to finish theirs. And my mom and Larry, Larry had more beer than anybody, so my brother was asking him for beer. But Larry said, no, it's mine. And Larry refused to give him beer. They were getting mad, they were getting, trying to get aggressive, I guess. 
they told them to leave, so they got up. They pretended to leave. They walked down the road, went to go see one of the local drug dealers trying to get some some drugs off them, but they wouldn't they couldn't get daddy. So they came back. I guess by that time my mom and Mary were sleep passed out already. They went in and they beat him up. My mom told the police that she don't remember anything. She told me she remembers. She remembers Larry begging for them to stop. They wouldn't. They just kept beating him. My son witnessed it all. Desmond Sr. still lives here. This home, this story is a picture of intergenerational trauma. The alcoholism, the violence, a man murdered over some beer in front of a four-year-old child. Desmond tells me both his mother and father attended residential schools. Neither one of them ever talked about the experience. That's the family legacy young Desmond Jr. is grappling with as he moves from childhood into adolescence. He was always polite and tried to be funny. Like I said, the last time I seen him was Christmas holidays. He used to come and visit and he was, he was fun. He was just a big kid. He was a teenager, but he was still a kid at heart. And, you know, he was just like, just like my other kids. (laughs) Just being silly. I never thought about the effect my lifestyle had upon my son. You know, I said, I don't blame anybody, but I blame myself. He was my son. He was my firstborn. I was supposed to be there for him. I was supposed to protect him. But I didn't. I wasn't there. I was hardly ever there. When, when your son goes missing, what do you think has happened at that point? first I was hopeful. There's so many stories, so many. I don't believe any. See, they don't, investigators, I was never a part of the, you know, the only time you know, they see me is when they come to the house because one her, her her family kept saying I was hiding them. Me, my sister, and my brother were all hiding them. We're taking turns hiding them. I'm hiding my son in the floor beneath my kitchen. We dug out a dug out of dug out the floor, and there's a hiding spot in my kitchen. Or I'm hiding them, so they'd show up. Every month. I was like, how can I put a floor in my kitchen? It's on the second floor. <laughs> you know, so like I said, they, they never, the investigators never came to see me. They never interviewed me. You know, when they did interview me, it was, I was upset. I was angry. They came, they took me to the station and 
They said, we have a few questions to ask you about your son. And they did a polygraph test on me. I guess it's routine. So I did a polygraph test. And one of the first questions they asked is if my son has been murdered. If you know if your son has been murdered. And are you a part of this murder? And I was just... And so then I was angry. I was just mad then after that. And I, you know, all the stories that went out to missing children and everything, all that information came from Liz's side of the family. And they never interviewed me or anyone in my family about it. Am I correct in hearing that he used to like to spend a lot of time out on his bike on the road, mm -hmm. traveling around a bit? Yeah, yeah. so it was, it was his mode of transportation, it was his bike. And the last place Liz saw him was on the highway, he was heading to town. You know, even now there's one of the police, one of the investigators got a hold of Liz last month and they're trying to say he's down the west in the van, west van, living in the Pride area. Gives a little bit of hope, but I don't know. Uh, what do you make of this suggestion or possibility that Desmond, you know, left and went off and established a new life for himself? What do you make of that? I guess it's, it's believable, you know, of all the trauma, all the things he witnessed in his life, and death and abuse. And, you know, it was like Liz was talking to me about some of the things he used to do, and that's red flags of abuse. You know, she never talked to anybody about it. She told me, and it's like, I didn't know what to do, who to, who to tell her. Sorry, what, what are you referring to there? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Him, him and exhibiting behaviors that he'd been Somewhat maybe sexually abused. Oh, that that he that he had been abused. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. No, like I said, with him running off, starting a new life is like, yeah, unbelievable. Of everything he had gone through in his young life, and said witness death, abuse, neglect, good parties gone bad. <laughs> so yeah, it would be believable. If I didn't believe in my culture and you know, witnessing the ceremonies that we have done on his behalf. And in that world where Desmond is alive and out there, is there anything you'd want to say to him? Just come home. Everybody misses you. Especially your mother. Just come home. Nobody will touch you. I'm just happy to have you home.
This story about Desmond being alive and well and living in Vancouver's West End gay community seems like a real stretch to me. Desmond is only 14 when he vanishes from the side of the highway. His mom believes he was looking forward to her getting out of rehab, to them living together as a family. As unlikely as it seems to me, I have to check it out. I get in touch with an organization that works with two-spirited youth in Vancouver. I explain my unusual request. They listen and agree to consider asking around. But then, nothing. I email and call again. No response. Most likely, they have better things to do than chase what is, in all likelihood, a ghost. But part of me also understands that if they did find Desmond and he wanted to remain in hiding from his family, this organization would be unlikely to out him to me. I begin researching just how many missing people actually do pick up and start over with a new identity. It's really not an easy topic to nail down, but my search quickly turns up two recent examples of men here in Canada who did just that. In one case, someone spotted a man's missing picture and connected it with someone he knew by another name. Turned out, the man didn't want to be in touch with his former friends and family. He'd left his old life for a reason. The other case involves a man on Canada's East Coast who used the identity of a deceased child here on the island and was only discovered after his sudden death of a heart attack. So, it happens. But could it have happened in this case? How hard is it to get a new identity? Turns out there is a company on the mainland that promises just this service. It takes me some time to connect with a man named Anton. And when I do, technical trouble. He can't hear my voice. I could type my questions and then you could simply on. So we carry on with me typing questions in a chat and he responding. Um, okay, Laura, okay, you can type and I'll talk. We offer anonymous living and new identity. We have the ability to help you basically restart your life. I begin by asking why people typically come to him looking for a new identity. He responds with the story of a woman he once helped. A woman who had testified against her Eastern European mobster husband. Her home country didn't offer a witness protection program. So she turned to this company for help. But in general, their clients tend to be middle-aged, older men. Really, they're sometimes just unhappy with their life. Uh, their family situation hasn't gone well. They've had a failed relationship or they're having a hard time uh, uh, getting past it and moving on. And somehow they feel that by changing their identity, they would, you know, they can somehow relive that, leave that in their past, their former life and start a new identity and that everything will be kind of 
better by just changing identity. You know, their 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 life or their situation will be better. I've dealt with a few cases where the person wanted to change their identity and it was basically to escape their family because so much was expected of them. Okay. And they felt like they had disappointed their, their family, you know, uh, whether it be school or whether it be jobs or, you know, whatever they felt they'd been a disappointment and that they really felt like they just needed a new start and they wanted to leave their family behind them. And that's the motivation for them, you know, you know, wanting to change their identity. I mean, it is possible that, and I do believe that people, some people, they just, all of a sudden, they just, they feel overwhelmed and they just feel like the only way I can, you know, get past this, you know, this kind of block in my life is by changing my identity and reinventing myself. And I do believe they believe there are people like that. If you do that, like you change your identity and you start over again, it's really hard. It takes a lot of discipline. You have to leave everybody you knew, all the people you ever met, everything behind you, okay, and start over again. And if you can just imagine what that's like, um, it's really, really hard. So there's a lot of people, I don't believe that they, you know, cases where people just picked, they just said, oh, they just, when they picked up and left. I'm really, in my professional opinion, I think that's really, really uh, difficult to do. I don't think it's, it's, it's probable that they did that. He tells me most of the work they do in this area involves clients who invest in a new citizenship in a foreign country and then change their identities. It's an expensive proposition. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it normally takes 18 months to three years to get that new citizenship. The men whose cases I'm exploring don't have anywhere near this level of resources, not even close. I ask him about simply assuming someone else's identity, like the legendary Frank Abagnale of Catch Me If You Can fame. Um, a number of years ago, it was possible if you wanted to get a new ID, okay, you would start off with like, you need a birth certificate, right? So you need a birth certificate of somebody who had been born but had never gone on to apply for, let's say, a social insurance number or a driver's license, etc. They had just acquired a birth certificate. And how you did that was basically you would go to like a graveyard, okay, and you would go to the children's section of the graveyard. And in the children's section of the graveyard, you would find um, a tombstone of a child that was approximately your age or the age you wanted to be. And you write down the information and on the tombstone, you'd be looking for date of birth and then you'd be looking of the day of the death. You'd want a child or, or, or the, the, the person you're looking at, the tombstone you're looking at, you'd want it to be within a year. OK, so let's say the baby was born in 1960, January and deceased in September 1960. That would be perfect. So what you do next is you write down that information. So basically all you have is the child's name, you have the date of birth and the date that they died, okay? Then you go, let's say from 1960, you go to the library and you'd ask to see the newspapers from 1960. So, so you look back in the microfiche from 1960. So basically you'd be looking from January 1960, around the time the, the child or the, 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 the deceased child was born, and you'd start looking for birth notices. Once you've gone to the birth notices, you'll most likely find an announcement of birth. And the announcement reads something like this. 
baby David Jones was born um, uh, January 2nd, 1960, to the happy parents, uh, Martha and Raymond Smith, and to the grandparents, Tom and Clarissa Smith, and the Johnsons, uh, Bob and, and Mabel Jones. Okay, so right there, you found the mother's maiden name. Okay, so with the mother's maiden name, then you can apply for the birth certificate. Okay, once you're given the birth certificate, then you can start building the ID or your new identity from that basis. Let's just say you were the, the person who was doing it was 30 years old. So basically, you've got a problem that the identity or the child has been basically deceased for 30 years. And so they've applied for no like no, um, no, no social insurance number, no driver's license. They've never filed a tax return, anything, no medical card. Okay. So what you do is you simply, when you, you get the birth certificate, you go to the office, okay, the medical services offices or in British Columbia, the BC services offices, and you simply apply. And if they were to ask, well, how, how come, you know, you're 30 years old and you don't have a social insurance number, you, you know, it seems odd because most people, you know, they get the social insurance number when they're teenagers, right? But you simply explain to them that, well, you've been out of the country. You've been living out of the country and you just came back. Then they're basically they'll issue, um, you, they'll, they'll issue basic ID, let's say a BC ID card or a provincial ID card. And then using that, you have photo ID and then you just keep building the rest of your ID. And that was then. Now you can't do that. Okay, because what they do now, provinces, they match birth to death certificates. So they'll know right away that whoever's applying for this birth certificate is doing so in a fraudulent manner. So it's not as easy as it once was to establish a new fake identity. And he tells me biometrics, too, make it much harder than it used to be. That image on a passport photo will be tied to you for life. Years ago, I worked on a story about a Vancouver banker and his wife who had vanished. Nick Massey and his wife Lisa disappeared in 1994. Nick was involved in a shady high-stakes stock deal. I could absolutely see the new life, new identity theory as a possibility in a case like Nick and Lisa's. But the missing men I'm exploring now just don't seem to have the capacity or the motivation to pull off this kind of duplicity. That doesn't mean they couldn't be off-grid using a different name without going through the hassle of acquiring new social security, ID, or banking. But... As Anton said, that too requires a kind of discipline and determination that I don't really see as likely in a case like Desmond's. Where could Desmond be? This child who witnessed a murder at a young age. This boy who spent so much time with his games, who loved playing chess, was a chess champion the boy who would take food to his friends to avoid being a burden. Where are you, Desmond Peter? I'm ending each episode of this podcast with a very specific request. 
There is a lot of information out there I have yet to surface, and frankly, I could use your help. If you are familiar with Vancouver's West End LGBTQ community, is there anyone you know who could be Desmond Peter? He would likely be using a different name. In 2021, he would be 28 years old. He is Indigenous, he has dark brown hair and dark eyes. He is handsome. He would likely be vague about his background. Please let me know if you know someone who fits this description. You could help a family, a community move forward. And if Desmond prefers his new life remain a secret, I will keep his whereabouts confidential beyond letting his community know he is alive. And Desmond, if you are listening and you don't want to reach out to your family directly, please get in touch with me at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Honestly, this appeal feels like a long shot. It will be stunning to me if Desmond turns out to be alive and living just across the Strait of Georgia after all these years. I think of the story his father told me of the talking cedar boards telling him Desmond's spirit was on the other side. If Desmond did meet with foul play, he could be the earliest victim of a serial killer. In the next episode of Gone Boys, another story from the Cowichan First Nation. We have set days, our teaching. We have a set period for mourning. We have teachings that we follow until our loved one is laid to rest. There's teachings that follows after the loved one is laid to rest. Those teachings are put there to enable us to allow our loved ones to continue their journey to the other side. We don't know what's going on if we're not following our teachings in our way until we can find our loved ones and looking and watching for our loved ones that are missing is not going to stop. So can none of those those things you described happen for these families until they're found? I guess not. We don't know if they're gone or not. You know, there was talk about following those steps, but the elders cautioned them and said, you're saying they're dead, are they? If they're not what you're doing, you're pushing them to the other side. I'm Laura Palmer. This is Island Crime, season two, Gone Boys. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Those reviews are rocket fuel for stories like Desmond's to reach an audience far beyond this island.